we developed that in in a way that you can actually modify the process as much as you want and participants and their rights. So we've done that specifically that the platform can be used in any country for any jurisdiction and you can create any deal flow you want. Welcome to a Bit Cryptic Podcast, where we interview top crypto experts to take you down the rabbit hole into the world of cryptocurrency. Now, it's time to get a bit cryptic. Howdy, cryptonauts. Welcome again to a Bit Cryptic Podcast. Today we are with Alex Voloshin, CTO of Propy, which is a real estate platform on the blockchain that allows for transaction listing and actual registry of land titles on the blockchain. So they're really doing some interesting stuff and we're excited to have you on. My name is Jeff Peterson and I'm here with my co-host Deng Du. You want to say hi, Deng? Hey, hey, Jeff. Hey, everyone. Deng's the real star of the podcast. I'm just the one who helps him shine. So Alex, how's it going today, man? It's good. It's good. Thank you for having me here. Yeah. Thank you for coming. I know you're a busy fellow. So tell us a little about your background. How'd you end up in this crazy operation you guys have going now? How'd you get into blockchain? So for my background, I have about 15 years of software development, working on a range of projects, starting from computer games and with cybersecurity projects. So I worked in the small and large companies like Ubisoft and Apple. And in fact, in Apple, I was working on a security solution. I have an entrepreneurial spirit. So I left Apple to create my own startup. And at that time, I was solely working on that. And it was got acquired by a US company. And here I am. Blockchain is... What was that startup? The startup was... Yeah, that you sold. Right. So... At the moment when iPhone was released, especially iPhone 2, everybody wanted an iPhone app, but very few people knew Objective-C. Kind of similar situation to blockchains right now when everybody wants a blockchain app, a blockchain service, a protocol, but unfortunately very few people caught in Solidity or other proprietary languages that was created for, for private blockchains as well. So back at that time, I decided that I should do something about it. And I made a framework where people could write in JavaScript and call native functionality from iPhone SDK, making the apps really much faster and having native experience while still developed using technologies that pretty much everybody knew. So it sounds like you're a guy who likes to adopt the hardest possible technology (laughs) <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you like you like to get to the most fringe things and then bring it to the normies. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was always trying to stay on the bleeding edge. It's very rewarding. It's hard, of course, but in terms of experience, in terms of fun, it's, it's incredibly rewarding. But Apple, it's a big company and developing at a company of that size, they they must have the Apple way of doing things. I'm just curious, you know, at at what point in your career did you decide to make that change, that that transition? Well, even before Apple, I worked at the bigger companies as well. Like the example that I made is Ubisoft. I was working on games there, first at porting games and then to develop features to gameplay elements, network, sound stack. So, I already had 
pretty good understanding how things work in larger companies. And at Apple, it was quite similar. The technology stack was different. The approach was a little bit different than the tools, but generally it's pretty much the same flow. So you already had a a competence of how to build things from the ground up essentially. And so that allows you to now join Propy where you are, are leading things as CTO. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually I would say that a lot of really, really useful information that I got for blockchain is from a company called Venify that I was working at at the moment when I was considering joining Propy. And that company, we did a lot of stuff on security front. So certificate management, key management, and those keys actually pretty much the same technology that make up blockchain. So public key infrastructure is a big component of blockchain and understanding it made my transition so much easier. So I'm going to just ask you to explain a little bit what public key technology is just for the 99% of people who aren't developers listening (laughs) to this who might know. (laughs) Just explain it like we're five. Okay. So encrypting information is well started really in a simple way. So many people heard about Caesar cipher, which is basically you just replace some letters to another letters by adding some number to it or using any conversion table you want. And essentially it is very easy to break this code, but at the moment where people didn't know how to read, that code was actually sufficiently strong. But basically as we progressed in our development, the encryption methods had to be improved. So it kept improving and, and there have been more and more encryption algorithms, different very cool ciphers and all these ciphers that basically just use the same key to encrypt and decrypt the data were called symmetrical keys. So after some time, there were a lot of use cases where it was no longer sufficient. So people came up with a new idea, like what if we can make two keys, one you can encrypt with one key and decrypt with another key. And that was the asymmetric encryption. And this is something that Dr. Jiffy really covered in his scientific paper. So he really wanted that for simulating or rather replacing human signatures. So banking and all other things. And for example, if you would have public and private key, this pair, a lot of really cool things you could do. You could put your public key in a public directory so anybody could get your key and encrypt some text with that key. And then only you have the private key to decrypt that text. So essentially anybody can send you encrypted messages and only you can decrypt them. And this technology on this based on asymmetric encryption is basically the huge part of blockchain. And that's how every transaction is signed. Basically, you take your private key, you sign that transaction, and then with your public key, this transaction can be verified. So instead of like a key that one key that you use to both the encrypt and decrypt, which would kind of make it so you have to really trust the people who are sending you the encrypted information. Now you don't have to trust anyone because you have a public key that's different from your private key. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because if you only have one key, if you want to have communication channel, you have to share this key and then you no longer care about 
the security of the key on your computer or, or your hardware module. But you also have to care on the other side. And the third problem is the delivery mechanism of this key. If you just send this key over an encrypted channel, then somebody can just intercept that. And again, there are... So you have to encrypt the encryption key. <laughs> so then you have to trust that encryption. So do you just get a, like a Russian doll situation <laughs> of, of encryption keys in order to keep it safe? Yeah, and there are different solutions for that. But actually, like one of the most used solutions is actually to use asymmetric encryption to encrypt symmetric key and then to, to share that and use symmetric key for encryption of the main data because symmetric encryption is much faster. It's, it's about 50,000 mm, times faster okay. than a symmetric encryption. So for example, if you go on some website and you see HTTPS and this green block next to it and your connection is encrypted, that's likely that's, that's exactly what happened. Using server certificate, which has the key embedded in it, public key embedded into the into certificate, you get this public key encrypt the private key and share that between the server and the client and then use that key that nobody would see what you're browsing on your computer. Right. And so this is a crucial innovation for uh, modern day technology, especially since now a great deal of transactions, anything of value are conducted globally. And speaking of which, we could pivot to Propi, which deals with real estate transactions on the blockchain, perhaps you could kind of help the audience, help our listeners understand the problem they're trying to solve there. And you can be able to transfer your knowledge with the cryptography that we were just talking about on how to make this possible. Yeah, absolutely. Propi is solving multiple problems at once, actually. If you take one small problem in real estate and try to solve that, it just doesn't really fit with other solutions that you have. And this is why we decided that it has to be the entire experience. So this is why Propy platform essentially consists of three parts. In order to have excellent experience in buying or selling real estate and then registering that, we split the platform in three parts. One is the listing platform for the sellers to list their properties and for buyers to search the properties. And once the buyer found the property that he likes, he can basically click a button and transition to a second part of the platform, which is transaction platform, where all the documents are signed and the payments are done. And after the conveyance is complete, there is a third part to it, actual decentralized blockchain registry where this conveyance and instrument of conveyance will be recorded and can be used for verifications later on. So what exactly this solution solves and how it's different from other platforms besides having all of the steps on one platform? First of all, we provide additional security because one of the biggest problems on real estate right now is fraud. And Real Estate Magazine published about maybe two months ago, an article where they say about $1 billion lost every year, only in the real estate sector, only in the US. So $1 billion lost, every lost year. Lost to fraud? Mm -hmm. Yeah, fraud. And, and this is basically wire fraud where people 
most likely will try to forge emails from mm -hmm. somebody that you expect in this email. So for example, you expect payment instructions and those payment instructions came a bit earlier, but exactly from the person that you waited them from. So you have no problem paying this money. And then you receive another email with different payment instruction from the same person. So you start wondering what's going on. Well, turns out the first email was forged and you lost your money. This is a terrible situation to be in, especially considering that for most of the people, this investment in real estate, it's a one-time transaction. They buy it once and live the entire life and imagine losing this money. This is terrible. This is why it was our top priority to make sure this is not possible on our platform. So we don't even use emails for anything that may contain any sensitive information or even identifying information, which is send notifications. For example, when you're in the middle of a process and then everybody signed the documents and only you remaining, then we can send you a notification that, hey, log into your platform. There's something you need to do. So once you log in on the platform, all the data in and out is encrypted. So nobody can intercept your traffic and be so-called man in the middle. You're talking about process points where there can be forgery or risks of, for forgery in the US. You're suggesting that a large number of those scenarios involve social engineering related to the transaction or the payments. Now that's interesting. What about other points for forgery? For example, my understanding is with, you know, when you're transferring the title ownership, you have to be able to transfer that title. And so you have to be able to interact with a land registry system. With current registry system, there's a lot of system vulnerabilities with forgery as well, right? So are those part of the forgery problems too? Well, that's a different set of problems, which we, of course, also put very high priority to. And this is where our decentralized registry comes. First of all, all the documents that are recorded, the evidence for these documents, the hashes for these documents, hashes for the metadata, everything is recorded on public blockchain, meaning that if you already have the data, you can verify that with permissionless blockchain and that's Ethereum in our case. So you can verify the documents that these original documents, you can verify all the information that contains in the, in the metadata using these hashes and be sure that everything is correct. Of course, if you don't have this data, you cannot obtain this data directly from the blockchain without the special access. So this is partly covers forgery. Now, if somebody would forge some documents and will call you to court to dispute your rights to own some property, you can actually prove pretty much everything. Every single action that you've done on transaction platform is immutably recorded on a blockchain. So you have very good mathematically proven process and all the data related to it to prove that you are the owner and you have original documents. Now, another set of protection here is once this registry software is adopted by more and more registries and there are more data imported to the blockchain, it has another benefit is this data immutability. So if you want to modify something on a blockchain, you have to create new transaction essentially. When you do that, there is an evidence 
visible for everyone what exactly happened. So, for example, if you have any corrupt individuals working at the registry, mm-hmm. they cannot really change anything without publicly immediately knowing that they've been pulling shenanigans. Yeah, absolutely. And in different countries, that's a different severity of this problem. And some of the countries, they have such a strong corruption in the country that this is really their number one reason to adopt blockchain. And for other countries, for example, like US, it's different. I mean, these cases happen that somebody would modify something and try some fraud, but this is not really prevalent thing in the United States. So blockchain for US has actually multitude of different reasons to use. For example, to have data decentrally stored and to be able to restore immediately without actually thinking about infrastructure. For example, there was a registry where they've been using both paper methods to store the deeds and not only deeds, but pretty much all the recorded documents and digital recording as well. So they've been very careful and they made a lot of backups of their data. Well, problem is that these paper documents and computer and all the backups were pretty much in just two rooms. And when the building burned down, nothing was left and there is no way to restore the data. Of course, you can say that, well, all you have to do is distribute the data geographically and do this and do that and create controls for this. And this is very complicated. Since there are thousands, literally thousands of registries in the United States, a lot of them in smaller counties do not have access to professionals who can do that or the budget for this. So by using an open source and free software that puts stuff on the blockchain and in decentralized secure storage, which is of course encrypted and and shared between multiple registries, what happens is if you have a fire or something happened or flood or you lost your data for a variety of reasons, all you have to do, you put new computer, log in into system, pull your data back, pull your keys back, you're good to go. We're talking about the real estate market and you're located in California. I've heard that probably did its first real estate deal in, in the state of California. Could you tell the listener a little bit about that? and what was involved there? Yeah, so the deal in California was not the first deal for Propi. We had multiple deals already done and and California California definitely is very important for US because it was first in US deal that every step was done on the blockchain. So everything that I told you that every step is recorded, every document is recorded, the payment is made, everything was done in transaction platform recorded on the blockchain and powered by smart contracts. For that particular transaction, both buyer and seller, they wanted to use BTC. And basically all the normal participants that participate in California deals were present. So that's going to be buyer, seller, brokers, and escrow company. For brokers, actually, for this deal, there were not two brokers, but there was one broker representing two parties, which sometimes happens for a variety of reasons. Usually that's much cheaper to do if you have one broker. Yeah. So the deal went pretty well. Our platform is, we developed that in, in a way that you can actually modify the process as much as you want and participants and their rights. 
So we've done that specifically that the platform can be used in any country for any jurisdiction and you can create any deal flow you want. So in this case, when we started the deal, we realized that there are more things to it, like the buyer actually already owned portion of that land and he just wanted to buy out the rest. So he becomes sort of simultaneously buyer and seller and he also changed his name and he was not in US in the time when deal was happening. So there were a lot of factors, but that actually doesn't matter because the way we design platform is you don't have to be in that country. You can do everything from the comfort of your computer. Like the idea is to have something like Amazon for real estate. You go on a website, you like this house, you, you really want to buy that and you just buy that from the comfort of maybe you live in room. You just take computer, sit down there and make a purchase. And for the seller, pretty much everything was the same except one signature. So she had to physically go to the escrow's company office to place a signature. But this is something that we will eliminate as well. There are different possibilities like remote notarization and so on. Mm. And it's not legally required. It's just kind of like best practices of escrow companies. So we can definitely automate that too. And with smart contracts, with smart contracts, also beautiful thing is uh, well, first of all, it's really a decentralized environment where those executed, so nobody can influence hardware or influence certain results that are preferable to one party or another. So having that, you could actually go ahead and automate more and more stuff that we're thinking right now about and take every single step and see what can be automated. And for example, escrowing funds functionality, when we made the transaction deal in Ukraine, smart contract played the role of escrow and smart contract basically received the funds and held them until the deal was complete. And when the deal was complete, it dispersed the funds to the seller. So you could see that these portions of functionality can be quite easily automated. And since nobody really controls this money, it's smart contract control, you can be sure that, that nobody will try to commit any kind of fraud with this money, right? Which basically all these like government verifications and licenses and processes supposed to eliminate. And here those people don't even touch the money. So you're, so you're taking out a lot of the risk in the equation by having a smart contract escrow as opposed to organization. And so you're taking out all these things where people could be bad actors and, and automating it so no one can possibly cheat the system. Yes, that's, that's absolutely right. Yeah. I was just curious on the California transaction, like how long did it take to execute that deal? Was it a week, two weeks, several weeks, and the Ukraine deal as well? I'm not really sure. I need to check to be precise, but it didn't take long. Mostly the delays were because of really unrelated reasons. For example, well, the reason why buyer was not in the United States because he was getting married. And I mean, when you get in married and simultaneously buying real estate at the same time, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not so much time you have to prepare. <laughs> okay, I must have had yeah. a cortisol level in his blood that could have woke, woken up sick bears. I heard you can record a marriage license on the blockchain now too. So, it could be a... Yeah, I wonder, yeah, I wonder if you put it on the blockchain yeah. also. <laughs> 
That's actually what our platform allows you to do as well, because real estate transfers and the recording of the deeds is just part of what recording offices do. So if we want to give them software to, to record real estate, it has to be capable of recording everything else. And this is what we implement. You can actually record in blockchain registry pretty much any document. That was a requirement from when we just started our pilot in Vermont. And the city clerk told us that if somebody brings their children's drawings or something like this, that's not a document. But people want to record that. They have to record it and keep it forever. Hmm. It sounds like rent that has to be paid to keep these documents. Versus on the blockchain, it just kind of sits there. Yeah, pretty much. Actually, you're right. Like a lot of the registries who operate with paper, and that's in some places, that's actually a requirement to have both. They have vaults, and those vaults getting filled up. And the vault, let's say, in, the, in South Burlington is pretty full right now. So they still have some space left, but they will have to think about some solutions, maybe get another wall to another building, which again, costs a lot of money. So I, I want to pivot now to more what you guys have been doing as a business, because I think it's, that part's interesting to people as well. So you guys had a token sale back in September and you raised $15 million approximately at that time, right? That's right. Which congratulations. That's, that's awesome. Thank you. So... I want to hear more about how that worked. And I'm also curious, like how you guys attracted such big name advisors. Like how did you get like Michael Arrington, the uh, co-founder of TechCrunch and guys like Vinny Linkham, the co-founder of, of Civic. And how do you end up meeting all these people and then attracting them as advisors? Well, so for meeting people and networking, that's really a big, how to say, big kudos <laughs> to, to Natalia Karayanova, who's our CEO. She was talking to all these people and was explaining the idea. And networking is just the first part of it. Like once you're able to to find these people who are influential people in the space, who really know what they're doing, who really can give you good advice, not just be somewhere on the paper. Once you find these people, if you give them bad idea, they're not going to be advisors. They don't want to put their name somewhere where you know, it's going to be a fraud or failure or something like that. So the idea itself is very interesting to these people. They see basically how this can take real estate on a completely new level. And don't forget that real estate is an immense industry. And being part of something like that is actually really interesting and important. So on our meetings with advisors, we have really excellent debates on where blockchain is going, what's the best technologies emerging, how to do things right. And that's basically like a big brainstorm where they contribute a lot. We learn from them. And I think they're really happy to, to be part of something that changing such a large industry that people said it's impossible to be changed. So basically, step one is have a good idea. Step two, have a good team. And step three, have a CEO with a silver tongue who can <laughs> people. Right. A charismatic CEO. Now that you're in a post-ICO world, past the token sale, I bet the pace, the project management, and the priorities are different, right? So tell us some of the lessons you're learning from there because there seems to be a lot of focus often on all the hype and all the media coverage and leading up to 
the token launch and, and the initial coin offering. But here you're past that point. So tell us a little bit how you're continuing to stay focused and to continue delivering, executing on your roadmap. Well, I'd like to start with a little bit of ICO itself or rather token sale that we had. So we we worked on normal things like everybody else do, marketing, white paper, everything. Actually, even white paper was done even before we thought to do the token sale because it was done pretty much just for ourselves. But then we also been building already software to have a proof of concept or even alpha version for the ICO. That was a big difference for majority of the ICOs that's been going on at that time because people were coming up with white papers, people just talk about ideas, but it's really unclear. Can you deliver this idea? Do you really have the necessary experience to do it? And can you build a team? Even if your idea is great, this is not really the end game. The end result, it's always idea multiplied by implementation. So what we did, we actually have a POC for the listing platform and an alpha version for transaction platform. So after token sale was complete, and of course, that gave much more confidence to the token sale contributors in our ability to execute. And then after the token sale, very shortly after, I think it was just a couple of weeks, we already had a first deal on this alpha platform that we built. Of course, it came a long way after that, but that already was a huge milestone. And after that, I can say that we brainstorm our roadmap. We listen to our community. Our community is very supportive. So they give feedback on apps, on website on transaction platform, a lot of people from our community become property ambassadors and they really help us a lot, which is actually a very big difference between actually making an ICO and raising from VCs. So you raised from VCs, yes, they're going to give you some advice, but they're not going to actively help you in this capacity as community does. And I think this is something that currently a bit undervalued how much contribution community does. And having all this feedback, we essentially build the roadmaps. We, we set goals that we want to achieve and we move towards those goals. And if everything goes well, that's great. If something doesn't go well, we brainstorm where we see where we make mistakes, we correct and we continue pushing. So I'm curious, what were some of those mistakes you guys made? And, and you don't have to air your, all your dirty laundry, but ones that, are, that you can't air. <laughs> that people can learn from? What were some of the mistakes and, and how did you guys recover from that? Well, I think if we would have to do this all over again, I think we would really consider if we would want to have US participants or not, because we actually had a lot of legal advice and we definitely did everything correctly and legally. We didn't want to go into gray zone or anything like that or or like other companies take even pretty big risks. We didn't want to do that. We did everything very safely, but that costs, first of all, a lot of money. And second, there is a lot of regulation that's going on that you have to comply with, which again, costs a lot of money and effort. So I would say that if we don't have to deal with so much regulation and legal, 
we would definitely have more resources to do a lot more engineering, maybe a lot more research. And I think in my mind, that would be a huge win. So if we had to do token sale all over again, I think there is a high chance that we would not allow U.S. participants. And then you don't have to deal with all the, the headache of the SEC potentially coming after you and all that if you mess up. Exactly. And every time they say something, every time something is done, people get afraid, people wait for clarifications, you still have to consult with lawyers. And since we took that conservative approach, actually none of the things really had a negative impact on us, but it requires a lot of the resources to stay that way. Right. Makes sense. So that's the token sale. Then what about lessons learned from the business transaction side? You've had a what you consider a, a effective, successful transaction that deal done in California. What are your lessons learned there from working with jurisdictions like the state of California or even like the state of Vermont, which I read you guys have been active with outreach to uh, public policy officials? Yeah, Vermont, they're super supportive for blockchain. They want to modernize how the government does their functions. They want to connect with other government entities and share the data between themselves. They're very progressive in this sense. And of course, by doing this, they would, of course, bring a lot of jobs in the state and not just any jobs, high tech, high paid jobs, which is like a dream of any politician. So we're working with them on pilots for the decentralized real estate registry. And we're very grateful for them for providing all the feedback as well. So we work at the city clerk at South Burlington. Her name is Donna. She's been a lot of help. She gave feedback, what works, what doesn't work, what would be good to have, something that people don't have it yet. So we can actually iterate on the software, make it more simple to use, reduce the learning curve, because ideally, if you want to replace the software, you don't want to retrain all your personnel as well. So we keep this in mind. And I think our cooperation there was definitely quite successful. And we are on the last stage of the pilot with South Burlington. And now we're looking to start the pilots in a couple other cities. And essentially, those new pilots that we start, we already skip in phase one. So we're starting from phase two already out of three. And then after those pilots, I think essentially for the next pilots, we'll be starting directly from stage three and so on. But basically, the more people adopt your registry, the simpler it becomes for others to join. And even other states, you know, about 90% of the stuff remains the same. And then there are this 10% that varies here and there, where states don't dictate how you do recording, they give you recommendations. And then you take these recommendations, well, some things they dictate how to do, but then you have recommendations and you have some leeway, you can implement some of the things that maybe work for your city best. And those are small changes that we can easily customize the registry for, and then Imagine if a couple of states already using that, then adoption is not really a problem anymore. Anybody would be like, well, do we want to connect with other government registries? Do we want to keep the communication together, maybe share the data or even do the verification? So, for example, you could 
if this property has a lease on it or maybe arrest or something like that. If you have these registries interconnected and be able to query the data, I, I think that that would be great, beautiful. Right, you streamline a lot of the processes that might be quite inefficient right now. You can do it across state lines. Oh, absolutely. And a low digital recording as well. Of course, like if you do digital recording, it's so much easier and so much faster. We had conversations with people who run in digital recording. They they look at about like 70, 60% of digital recordings and they really, really want this number to go up. But there's still a lot of companies like escrow companies who, who just use paper because they got used to it and they send the paper to registries. So we have solutions for them as well for digital recording. And imagine essentially, instead of dealing with all this paper, you get everything ready and digitized and in the right format and with proofs and with all the information you need. And all you have to do, you basically go through it, verify and approve. And that would save a lot of time for everybody. Right. Makes sense. So how many transactions have you guys done already? So right now, that would be three full transactions where literally every step was done on the platform. Then there are a couple transactions that not all of the steps were done on the platform, but some of the steps. And there are maybe a dozen and a half even recordings that we did in decentralized registry for properties where people come in and say, like we did the conveyance in conventional way, but now that we learn about property, we want to have our deeds recorded on the blockchain as well. So they bring in these deeds and we record them on the blockchain. They have additional backup copy. They have these verifications as well stored. So even if they lose this deed, it's not going to be that bad. Cool. So we should be seeing even more in the future. By next year, Propia will take over. All, all transactions will be done on the blockchain in, well, yeah. in a few years in the real estate industry. Yeah, I think things are going to go much faster because like you ask me, what have we learned from specific deals? Right from the deals that we had. Well, first thing is that there is not really such thing as California process or I don't know, Utah process. You have the process, you have the steps, but in every case, there are some things that you will have to modify, some things that you will have to include additionally. And there are so many different conditional states there as well that we thought, wow, this is not going to be really possible to customize everything for every single deal. So we started learning how we can automate these things, how we can know in advance what's going to happen in these deals. So for example, if there are certain options, maybe we create some sort of wizard that, that asks a question. And then basically after this question, about 100 more questions become irrelevant for you. And having this UX with very simple steps to configure the deals to give actually access for this functionality to people. And I think we moved really well with that. We implemented the adaptive transaction platform. Now we want to give more control to people's hands and people will do these things that Propi does now. For example, what if you buy a house and, and you want add additional step with some extra documents? 
Right now, there is somebody from Propy who just observes the deal. And if something needs to be changed or like step added, this Propy person will do it. But we want to give people control over that. and we But we don't want to make it complicated. You want to make everything within control on an app to be controllable, essentially from the user end and automated. Especially since we're talking about decentralization, that's exactly the point. Yeah. People, the, the process decentralized. Yeah, make it so all people are redundant at that point. So everything is done on a smart contract or by an app. And from perspective of automation as well, we will be able to process so much more deals. And we are really close to actually releasing this solution as well. So this is why I'm saying that 2019 is definitely going to be a really good year. And we should be able to see a lot of growth in the number of deals, especially considering that we educate in brokers, we educate in real estate companies that potentially want to use our software for all of their deals, even if they're REITs or other property management companies. They just want to streamline the process and they want to use a platform. So potentially it's not just like adding one or five deals at a time. It could be adding hundreds of deals at a time yeah. just from single companies like that. That'd be cool. Well, we are out of time, Alex, but it's been a pleasure speaking to you. I especially enjoyed learning about the public key technology. I didn't know all of that stuff. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on and teaching us about how Propy works and everything else that we talked about. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Where can people find out more about you? So for Propy, there is a website, propy.com. There is actually a lot of information on blog.propy.com describing in technical steps how, how each transactions were how each transactions were performed and have the data was stored and property economics token economics there's a lot of interesting information on blog.propy.com and for me specifically you can reach me out on linkedin where I just use my full name alexander voloshin and my twitter is alex voloshin is one word that's v o l o s h y n voloshin right that's correct okay. yeah great well, thank you so much, Alex. It's been a pleasure having you on and hopefully we get to talk to you again soon. Thank you, Alex. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Take care. Thank you for listening to a Bit Cryptic podcast. A Bit Cryptic podcast is hosted by Alain Leon, Dang Du, and myself, Jeff Peterson. Show notes are by our editor-in-chief, Dang Du. Website is by Sammy Toucan and his team at Pack Surge Media. Remember, nothing we say in this show is meant to be financial advice. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and family. Thank you for listening. And remember, keep it cryptic.